We'll open your Bibles to Mark chapter 8, if you would. We're going to finish out the chapter this morning, but we're not going to finish the scene. Mark chapter 8. And from the moment that Jesus left Galilee on this purposeful trip to Caesarea Philippi, it's, it's all one very significant segment. And I said it's like the, the turning from Galilee to the second part of Mark where there is a turning uh, to the training of the disciples to prepare them for the final scene. And you know what the final scene is. The final scene is, is the, the trip to Jerusalem where Jesus will go to the cross, where, where he will be crucified, buried, and then rise from, from the dead. And then all of this training that the disciples are receiving right now will, 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 will matter greatly because they will be the ones who will then be unleashed to proclaim the gospel to, to an unbelieving world. And as you know, beginning right there in Jerusalem, at the day of, of Pentecost, um, and into Samaria and Judea, and then to the uttermost parts of the earth, and the book of Acts ends with that still continuing, and it still continues today. We are in the uttermost parts of, of the earth, and the gospel is, is being proclaimed right here. This scene begins with Jesus turning from Galilee after their rejection, taking the disciples to this place called Caesarea Philippi, where there's massive amounts of pagan worship. And he, he poses that question to them, who do men say that I am, who do you say that I am? They make the great confession, you are the Christ, finally. You are the Christ, the Son of the, of the living God. And then Jesus lays on them exactly what that means, what is his, his mission. And we're going to see the follow-up conversation from that and this whole scene ends it comes to a crescendo in the transfiguration jesus will be transfigured his glory will be will be revealed the the glory that he will receive again after the cross in his in his exaltation so it's the end of of mark chapter 8 but the transfiguration is at the beginning of mark chapter 9 and i think the passage that we saw last week and the passage this week contain two of the most potent and probing questions in all of Scripture. And I think you would agree with me. Who do you say that I am? That's the first question. That's, that's a significant question. That is the question, right? Who do you say that the Son of Man is? Who, who is Jesus Christ? He is who He is. The question is, what are you going to do with Him? That, that's the first question. We saw that last week. But this week, the second question what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and lose his soul? That's, that's a pretty probing question, isn't it? One of those questions, the first one, is asked to, to evoke an answer. Who do men say that? Who do you say that I am? And, and the disciples were to answer. And they said, you're the Christ. You're the promised one of God, the one who has come. The other question, what does it profit to gain the whole world and, and lose your soul, assumes the answer. It, but it forces us to consider the obvious. Well, well, it doesn't profit anything if you gain the whole world and, and lose the soul. In light of eternity, it profits nothing to have the whole world and yet perish forever. I mean, so it's a, it's a question that, that you're forced to, 
to, to declare the obvious in your own mind. And we're going to see that, that setting this morning where Jesus asks that question of the disciples today and shows them how they're part of the plan. They, they didn't struggle with Jesus as the person. He is the Christ. They struggled with the plan, and now he's going to show them what that plan means for, for them, and not only for them, but for me and for you this morning. After weeks of preaching and hundreds of miracles and signs of divine power, there's finally no question in the disciples' mind about the person of Jesus. But they struggle greatly with the plan. Peter speaks on behalf of the group and he rebukes the Lord. And the Lord then rebukes Peter. Jesus is going to show them exactly what that that means today, what that plan means for him, and also not just for him, but all of his followers. This passage is a follow-up to the rebuke that Jesus makes to Peter and the rest of the disciples. And Jesus responds to all the disciples, not just Peter, and also to the crowd, as you're going to see. So it goes far beyond him suffering and far beyond him being rejected, it involves all who follow him are going to do the same. And that's what's recorded in verse 34 through 38 that, that Clay read for us. It's really an invitation after this rebuke. The word if is, is used quite a bit. If. And if indicates a choice. You're thinking the wrong way, Peter, and the disciples. Now now follow me, and here's what it really means to follow me. And a lot of invitations that, that, that you'll hear in our day are going to be a far cry from the one that, that Jesus gives. Because the gospel that you will hear in a lot of pulpits and churches today are a far cry from the gospel that is proclaimed here in, in the Word of God. This is an invitation. Not to fulfillment or self-esteem or loving yourself or a trouble-free life. This is, a, this is an invitation of self-denial, cross-bearing, and continued obedience. That's the invitation. And that invitation comes after the Christ. He is Christ and He is Lord. You see how those two things go together. That's the Lord's invitation. Self-denial, cross-bearing, and obedience. And they're struggling with the plan that Jesus is going to die. And he says, not only that, but many of you will as well if you follow me. So come and die. I invite you. Come and die. That's what Jesus is saying here. Some wonderful life. Some plan, right? But it is wonderful. It's the greatest plan that God ever created, anyone ever created, if you understand who Jesus is and if you understand what is at stake, and that's what Jesus is pressing upon the disciples this morning and upon, upon me and, and upon you. The Messiah's followers would, be, would, would have no different fate than, than him. They would follow God in rejection, in suffering, and some unto death, just like Christ. And embracing that is what a true disciple looks like. Jesus said, go into all the world and make disciples. You're a follower, which means that there's a point where you start, but then you follow, you, you continue after. 
And this invitation that Jesus gives here is not isolated. It, it's all over the, the, the New Testament. Jesus makes the call over and over. Luke fourteen twenty six. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Luke nine sixty two, Jesus said unto him, No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Luke 14, 28 tells those who are considering Christ to count the cost before coming. Which one of you, when he wants to build a tower, does not first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who observe it will begin to ridicule him. And then right after that, he talks about a king going to war against a greater army. What about the one that you know really well, Matthew seven thirteen? Enter through the the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction, and there are many who enter through it. For the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life, and few be there that find it. Sermon on the Mount. One writer says it's not... This is not easy because you have to say no to self, you have to say no to family, you have to say no to the things of the world, you have to say no to the love of sin. And we all want the kingdom, we all want forgiveness, we all want eternal life, but the price is everything, everything you are, the end of you. And that's the invitation that Jesus gives here. It's a pretty heavy invitation, isn't it? Give up all you are and you can have all of me. Eternal life will cost you earthly ease. It's the. It's not that you're working your way or earning your salvation. It's just this is what it means to to embrace the one who has purchased your salvation. This is what it looks like. The Christ leads to the cross, and the disciples' great confession now must be accompanied by a great submission. And Jesus shows us what are the requirements to follow Him, and that's what I would outline. There are four here. There's a personal cross. He shows us a personal cross in following Christ in verse 34. There's a clear choice in the test of loyalties in verse 35. There's an accurate comparison about things in light of eternity. And there's a shameless confession before men in verse 38. You want to follow Jesus Christ? You want to go to heaven? You want to enter into salvation? Take a personal cross in following Christ in verse 34. Look at verse 34, if you would. When he'd called the people or the crowd to himself with his disciples also, he said to them, he said to them all, Whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and and follow me. Now the crowd is called together. This, I mean, this is this is significant because this is all about the disciples, and he's up here in this area of Caesarea Philippi, and he's not there to preach 
or to do miracles. He's there for the disciples. But here, he calls the crowd together, and he makes this statement to the disciples and to the, the, the crowd, because this is not for only the apostles. Not, it's not just the apostles that will face this in following Christ. This is for all of the disciples of Jesus. And he describes it with, with three statements. Whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. And then the following verses provide an explanation of what he means by that. There's a clear choice that must be made. For whoever, in verse 35, for whoever desires to save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. There's sound reason for that. For what will it profit a man, in verse 36, if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? In verse 37, or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? There's sound reason. And then there's a future that depends on it. Verse 38, for whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him the Son of Man will be ashamed when he comes, future, in the glory of his Father with his, with his holy angels. Jesus is saying to the disciples, confession is only part of the equation, right? Confess with your mouth and believe in your heart. True confession is followed by genuine submission. And those who confess Christ in name only, they're all over the place. You can see them in the crowds. Jesus said, you seek me for the bread. Don't seek me for the bread that perishes. Seek me for the bread that will feed you eternally. Those who confess Christ in name only are no more of his true followers than the demons who do the same. In fact, demons are probably greater because they obey. (laughs) There are a lot of people that name the name of Christ that don't even do that. Look at how he describes what being a true follower looks like. This whole scene is a courtroom. A lot of courtroom language. Those who follow Christ shift their center of gravity in their lives. They shift it from being self-oriented to reckless abandon to the will of God in following Christ. Those who desire to come after me, they they leave themselves and they come after him. And that involves self-denial. This is not some... Self-penance, taking vows of poverty, doing something intentionally to try to humble yourself or look really humble. That's not what this means. It means disowning any right that may be claimed by by self. It's It's a very strong expression in the Greek. It means to disown, to refuse to associate with, to or to companion with someone. It means you disown yourself. You don't love yourself, you disown yourself. What you're saying is, I no longer want to associate with the person that I am. I I realize what I am. I am sinful. I abandon myself, my agenda, my rights, my plan. I deny who I am and all that I am. And if you're a sinner and you get how deep your sin is, that what do you what do you have to lose? As the song says, what's what's there to go back to? I'm not returning to sin. I've made my vow. 
Anything prior to Christ, what, what, what worth is that? But, but you get it. You get that in, in, in salvation. Self-denial. And that's where following Christ starts. When writer said you take Christ on his terms, not yours. The proud sinner wants Christ and his pleasure. Christ and his own purposes. Christ and his possessions. Christ and his sin. But the person who is crushed and bankrupt is so desperate he wants Christ and will give up anything and everything to gain him. He's the pearl of great price. So you want to come to Christ? Repudiate yourself. Turn from all that you are. Be like the, the publican who, who, who the only thing that he has to offer is to, is, to, is to smite his own breast and say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. He's not standing there like the public and saying, I'm glad I'm not like this one and I've, I've tithed and I've done this. It, that's, that's self-exaltation. Self-denial is God be merciful to me, a sinner. Repudiate yourself and then take up your cross. So what else Jesus says. Let him deny himself and take up his cross. The demand of self-denial is now intensified. And it's intensified by this, this horrifying image of a death march. Taking up your cross is a, is a picture, as you know, of a condemned man going out to die, carrying his cross beam from the condemnation to the place of execution. Now, I want you to keep in mind, when you hear that, you think of Jesus on the cross, but that's not what the disciples would have thought at that moment, because Jesus hasn't told them yet that he's going to die by crucifixion. He's told him he's going to die. He's going to be rejected. He's going to suffer. But he hasn't said yet that he's going to be crucified. But, but they knew exactly what crucifixion was. And they had crucifixion in their minds. Some 30,000 Jews were crucified by the Romans during the, the, the days of Christ. And often during the, the same time. Some, there, were, there were up to 2,000 executed at, at one time on several occasions. And so the disciples were very used to seeing crucified victims because they're always placed by the road. They're always placed there for public shame and public scorn for everybody to see. And so when Jesus said, Peter rebukes Jesus, no, 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 you're not going to be rejected. You're not going to suffer. You're going to the throne. You're the king. Far be it from you, Lord. And Jesus says to Peter, you, you, you have demonic, worldly operating system, Peter. You're operating by your own desires, not God's, because God's operating system says that I'm going to die and go for a cross. And not only that, if you want to follow me, Peter, you've confessed that I'm the Christ. If you want to follow me, that means that you repudiate yourself and everything that you are, and you put the cross beam on your back, and you walk as a condemned man on this earth, because I'm a condemned man. And anybody who follows me is also condemned by the world. Not every believer will be martyred. But every believer will suffer and be rejected and bear public shame because they claim Christ. You carry an earthly death sentence. Stop trying to, be, to, make, your, to make the world accept you or receive you. They don't because they've rejected Christ. And as long as you hold to Christ, they will reject you. That's, that's the truth. That's what Jesus is saying to the disciples. And I think the disciples get a bad rap sometimes. We think they're so dense, and then we go, well, I'm just as dense. 
But the disciples have turned from, from everything to follow Jesus up to this point. I mean, they, when they followed him, they turned from the religious leaders. They're out of the synagogues. They left Galilee. They, they, they've turned their back on, on Judaism at that point, apostate Judaism. And now Jesus is, is, is showing them exactly where that's going to end and where that's going to lead. And, and maybe you've come to Christ and, and, and maybe you have turned from, from yourself and maybe you're, you're young in the faith or you haven't grown a whole lot, but the, your life is going to mean a death sentence. The world will never like you. They will never receive you unless they receive the message and the Savior that you embrace. Have you ever been somewhere where you, you, know, you have nothing in common with the individuals, but you just feel a brotherhood? You just know you're amongst your people? They don't look like you. They don't feel like you. They may not smell like you. They don't, they don't play the same music. They don't use whatever, wherever. But they're, but they're your people. They are your people because Christ is, is, is your Savior and their Savior. And have you ever been around people that you have everything humanly in common and yet you sense that you're very different? You are very different. You carry an earthly death sentence if you follow Christ from the moment that you confess Him until you die. Are you, are you willing to do that? Will you lay aside your reputation to be named with Christ? Or will you duck and cover and not be worthy of his name? I could think I can remember the first time that I felt this, this tension. When I came to the Lord, I just wanted everybody to come to the Lord. And why in the world wouldn't anybody want to go to heaven and embrace Jesus? And I can remember being at a flea market in Milton, West Virginia. This is where my pastor, that's how he made ends meet. His wife had a flea market, antiques and such there. And, and I saw two men sweeping up the floor. I was just walking through. I was just visiting him, getting ready to leave. And, and I saw two men sweeping up and one standing with a broom over here and one standing with a broom over there. And somebody had left a gospel track on the, on the counter and, and it had fallen to the floor. And my eyes caught the gospel track. And I immediately thought, oh, praise God, somebody trying to share the Lord with, with somebody else. And the other man took the broom and, and he, he swept the gospel track up in his, you know, the little thing that falls open. You know, if you swept the gospel track, I looked at the other guy like, yeah, that's exactly where that belonged. And I can remember everything in me wanted to just dive down on the ground and pick that up and go, that, that's not trash, that's treasure. I mean, it is. That is the words of eternal life. You're throwing away eternity right there. But I didn't. Jesus is saying, if, if you're going to, to follow me, he's the world's trash, but he is your treasure. And because he's your treasure, you'll be the world's trash. Will you be known as a follower of Christ? Thirdly, he says, follow me. There is continued obedience. You deny self, you carry earthly death sentence. The entire time you follow the Lord. Follow me. 
That's what he says. Take up his cross and follow me. The verb means to imitate. And it's ongoing. You walk the same line the Lord walked. We live our lives in accordance to his words. We obey him. Isn't that what Jesus said? I mean, it's not difficult to understand. It may be really hard to put in practice, but it's not difficult to understand. If you love me, you do what? Keep my commandments. Love is first. But obedience follows. Desire moves to the will and moves to the action. John MacArthur said it's really simple to understand. If you're going to go on a trip, the first thing that you do is you say goodbye. The second thing you do is carry your baggage. The third thing you do is to proceed on the journey. That's all Jesus is saying. Say goodbye to self, pick up your cross, and let's go. That simple. Might be simple to understand, but it'd be difficult to very to carry out, right? And he explains that this involves a very serious test of of loyalty. You want to come to Christ, you you make a clear choice in the test of of loyalties. Look at verse thirty five. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's will save it. Notice it starts with four. He's explaining the previous statements. For whoever would save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's will save it. Now I want you to notice the stake is a person's life. That's the topic. I want you to notice that there's a choice provided. It's it's an option. It's a choice. Either save it or lose it. And I want you to notice the basis of that choice is Jesus and the gospel. Their association with Jesus and the gospel. Here is a courtroom scene where a person is given the choice to be freed if they'll deny association with a person condemned. You may see it on the movies, or you may have read about it in history, where there is a clearly condemned person, and the associates are brought in. And they say, are, are you an American too? The Vietnamese, are you an American too? The picture here is that Jesus is in the courtroom, and he's already condemned, and you're asked, are you with him, or are you not? If the person makes the wrong choice to save their life, Jesus says, and deny Christ and his message, they'll actually lose life. But if a person makes the choice to forfeit their life in that moment, say, yes, I am with him, yes, I affirm his message, then he'll actually save his life. I want you to notice that Jesus says for the first time here, he connects himself and his message, my sake and the Gospels. The first time that that Jesus calls for for a commitment to himself. He calls for a commitment to his message or his teaching before, but now they've confessed Christ. It's, It's him because they're connected. There's no Gospel story without the main character. I know that that seems so elementary for you at Timberlake Baptist Church, but there are places all over 
the world and all over the United States that want to take the message and remove the Christ. There is no gospel without Jesus. It's not a, a nice way to live. The Bible is not about following a, a way of life or a way of living, but the giver of life. It's, it's not enough to embrace, embrace the teachings only. It's, you've got to embrace the teacher. The gospel is knowing God, and, and in knowing him you follow his ways. And the gospel is the, is the news, but the news is about the content of the gospel. Who is Jesus Christ? It's, it's, no, it's no news unless it's about the cross. But those who know who he is and what he has done have no problem losing life on earth to gain life in heaven. And it leads us to the third view. It's because there's a, a very clear set of scales. He moves from the scales of justice in the courtroom to, to the scales in, in, in the marketplace. You want to follow Christ? Acquire an accurate comparison in, in light of eternity. There's commerce language used here. And there's a comparison. Look at verse 36 and 37. Notice it starts with four again. He's explaining. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his, for his soul? The soul is the, the real person, the real part of you. The part of you that will live forever in, in heaven. We spend a lot of time. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm glad you do. But we spend a lot of time beautifying this outward form that's going to perish. Lots of money, lots of time on the outward form, and it's going in the dirt, and the worms are going to eat it, and God's going to transform it one day and change it and bring it up out of the ground. So it's not useless. But the part of you, your soul, is where Jesus is aiming here. It's the part of you that that will be absent from this body and will be present with the Lord. It's the part of you that will live in eternity. There are two questions that, he, that, that are back-to-back here, and the second one emphasizes the answer to the first. What will it profit, or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? And he goes from the courtroom to the everyday marketplace scene and makes a comparison. He puts it on the scales, but, but the stakes are anything but ordinary. All of the words are for commerce, profit, gain, loss, give in exchange. It's, it's bartering. It's, it's what you do in the marketplace. It's a comparison of value on a ledger to evaluate which is more profitable, which is the better deal. But the ledger involves something that can't really be compared. And you know that. Losing human, human life in no way is, can be compensated by winning the world because you're too dead to enjoy it. Would you trade 70 years, 80 years, 90 years of pleasure and pain on earth with the best this world has to offer for never-ending eternity of torment? Is that a good deal on the scales? Is that a good deal on the scales? It's not a good deal on the scales. Does it make any sense to do that in the marketplace? 
Sin is illogical. Millions of people are doing it. You may be doing that this morning. You're, you, sin is illogical. If that makes sense to you, you're a really bad business person. I don't want you running my business. Because the values are so disproportionate, it's not even a real comparison. But millions of people are bad business people whenever it comes to eternity. On the flip side, though, you who are following Christ this morning, would you trade 70, 80, 90, 100, 150? Say it's prior to the flood. 900 years, would you trade 900 years of pleasure and pain of following Christ on the earth, of bearing a cross, giving up your rights, associating with the rejected Jesus and His Word, if you received eternal joy in heaven forever and ever and ever and ever. Is that a good deal? It's a great deal. And that's what Jesus offers. That's the choice. And unless you have an accurate comparison, and unless you're comparing in light of eternity, it makes no sense. It's a comparison, but you still have to choose. Which will you choose? What will you trade for your soul? Whatever that little glimpse of flash of of dopamine that goes surging through your brain whenever you look at that image that you shouldn't look at? What will you trade for your soul? Money? What will you trade for your soul? The praise of men? Better yet, what are you trading for your soul? When you put verse 35 and 36 together, I mean, it's, it, it's absurd. Verse 36, or verse 37, what, what will a man give in exchange for his soul? A person who secures their life by denying Jesus even when human life is, ex- is, is at stake, forfeits eternal life. And when a person does that, they experience absolute loss. Even though they've won the approval of the whole world by their denial of Jesus and the gospel. Jesus' point is infinite gain and infinite loss. That's what's at stake. Whether you'll confess Him and whether you'll follow Him unreservedly. And that choice is made now before men, before a wicked an adulterous generation, adulterous religious adulterers, those who claim to know God but don't and offer multiple paths, and the, or the wicked generation. That, that choice is made right now. But it reaches into the, into the future. Look at verse 30, 38. Notice he's still explaining. For whoever is ashamed of me and my words. In this adulterous and sinful generation. Of him. The son of man will also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his father. With the holy angels. Whoever is ashamed of me and my words. So there's the the dividing line. And it's before this 
adulterous and sinful or, or wicked generation. That's present. Of him, of that person, the Son of Man will be ashamed when he comes, that's future, in the glory of his Father and of his angels. This is about association and approval and future glory. There's a present association and a future approval. Securing the approval of the world and foregoing God's approval. What's in view here? Or gaining the approval of God and foregoing the world's approval. Now that approval comes through your association with Christ. And notice how he links before. Notice before in verse 35, he says, loses it for my sake and the gospel. He connects Christ with his, with his message, with the gospel, what he came to do. And notice here, he connects the shame of me and my words. He connects Christ with his words. This is God's words being spoken to us. And Jesus doesn't disconnect from the Bible. It's not, well, the Bible teaches us about Jesus, so that's a book of, for men, of men of many interpretations, and it leads you to Jesus. These are the very words of Jesus. And if you're going to be ashamed of Him, then you're going to be ashamed of His words. And if you're ashamed of His words, then that shows that you're ashamed of of Him. Each of these statements from verse 35 on reinforces the, the irony that the man who gains his life through denying Jesus in the gospel suffers infinite loss. And, and that the character of that loss is now defined. In the final judgment, when the Son of Man comes, that's when the gavel falls. That's when the judgment happens. And you think right now you're, you're denying Christ. I mean, there are people all over the world, blasphemers all over the world. And they should be glad I'm not God, and I should be glad I'm not God because I, sadly, to my shame, did the same thing. But as Joe Hutchinson used to say, lightning bolt out of heaven. I'd have fried my, I'd fried me for how blasphemous and arrogant and shake my puny little fist in God's face. There are people doing that all over. And it looks like that we're losing. It looks like the gospel is losing. And and yet there's coming a day when God will call all the rebels into account. And on that day, what you've done with Christ is the only thing that is going to allow you to escape when that gavel falls. And just because it looks like that there are rebels and, and Islam is gaining and, and the Buddhists are doing this, or there's coming a day when the Son of Man comes in the glory of His fathers and His angels. And in that day, the separation will be whether you confess Christ before the Muslims and before the Buddhists and before the wicked generation and before the homosexuals and before the whoever, the drunkards like I was before. Jesus now returns to the courtroom. But it's the supreme court. It's not the court of men. And he renders the verdict. Tells us when the verdict's going to be read. Notice Jesus changes the way he speaks about himself from present and future tense. Verse 35. For whoever is ashamed of me and my words 
of him the Son of Man will also be ashamed. He he speaks about himself in present and future tense. He changes from first person to his future title, the Son of Man, because judgment has been committed to the Son of Man. Being ashamed of the association with Christ, in turn seeking the approval of the world, is a serious denial. It's not just a choice about accepting or rejecting the gospel or believing the Bible. It's Jesus is God. The gospel is an invitation, but it's also a command because of who he is. And rejecting him in place of the world, in front of the world, exposes the Lord to contempt. Even more so in a world before a world that denies Christ and is adulterous and sinful. Rejecting Christ sides with their rejection and confirms the world and their its idolatrous character and has massive consequences in the end. Because the same Jesus is going to the cross and the grave and comes out in the resurrection and ascends and is seated at the right hand of the Father at this very moment. That same Jesus, the one that the that the apostles saw when they stood gazing. That same Jesus is coming again. And when he comes again as the Son of Man, he's going to come to execute a final judgment. And those who deny me, the Son of Man will deny when he comes, Jesus says. Your confession of Jesus now will determine how he deals with you in the future judgment. Jesus and the Son of Man are the same person. Right here is the deity of Christ. <laughs> And denial of Jesus now is a denial of the final judge himself. That's the startling reason, the criteria criteria for man's acceptance or rejection for the Son of Man is, is his loyalty or disloyalty to Jesus now. He may be, Jesus may be one who men are ashamed of now, but, but he's going to be openly revealed in the Father's glory in the future, as the one who will judge in that glory. But I want you to notice that there's hope in this verse. He says that there will be whoever is ashamed of me in my words in this adulterous and sinful generation. Of him the Son of Man will also be ashamed when he comes. But it also implies that there's going to be some that he's not going to be ashamed of whenever he comes. And those are the ones that come after him and deny themselves and take up their cross and continue in obedience. Jesus was sent to reveal the glory of God in the world who is intoxicated with its own glory. And proof of that is found in the fact that some will choose to gain the whole world and forfeit a life of eternity for it. And someone who has come to Christ proves by their loyalties in life that their their glory means nothing to them and the Father's glory means everything. And those people... God does not fail to exalt and grant eternal reward. Isn't that good news? Bad news turns to good news. So what about you? It's an invitation. 
And it's more than going to a prayer room or walking an aisle or saying words. How will you respond to the invitation? It's an invitation to come and die to yourself. But if you realize that what you have and who you are is is wicked and sinful, you have no problem repudiating that. It's an invitation to embrace association with Him and His rejection. It's It's an invitation to follow Him openly, no matter what it costs you. And if you're willing to do that, Jesus will be your advocate before the Father, even whenever you do sin. But if you're not willing to do that, you're not ready to come to Christ. Would you bow your heads? When He comes in all His Father's glory, He's coming for you if you're His own. And you'll reign with Him in that same glory because you have associated with Him and you have suffered with Him. What are you exchanging for your soul? What's it worth? Charles Spurgeon said, Men that live their lives denying Christ will wake up one day thinking they feasted on the world. They'll wake up one day with a mouthful of ashes. And Jesus stands before you and offers you eternal life if you'll come to Him. Father, we come before you with the the massive weight of what it means to turn from ourself and our sin to turn to you. And Father, it is impossible for us to do this apart from the power of your Holy Spirit. We would never obey continually if your Holy Spirit wasn't enabling us and helping us. And yet, Lord, if there are people here this morning that are hearing these words and there's a stirring in their heart that's saying it's true, it's what you need to do as a witness of the Spirit. Pray, Father, that you would give them the the courage, the faith, whatever they need to bow the knee to you and turn whatever it is that they're grasping a hold of in their hand. And I pray, Father, for us that are believers that we would understand biblical Christianity as bearing scoffing rude, shame, and suffering but looking forward to a future glory when we're with you in your kingdom. I ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.